welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lightspeed Venture Partners. Lightspeed is a globally leading venture capital firm with over $29 billion in capital under management and more than 500 investments across the US, Europe, and Asia. With its dedicated gaming practice, Lightspeed Gaming, the firm is investing from over $7 billion in early and growth stage capital, making it by far the largest fund focused on gaming and interactive technology. Lightspeed's team combines deep expertise in gaming with a global multi-stage investment platform and a culture that truly puts founders first. Selected investments include Epic Games, Snap, and Stability AI, as well as game designers and producers who led the creation of titles like Fortnite, Call of Duty, League of Legends, Valorant, StarCraft II, and many more. For more information, simply go to gaming.lsvp.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, Let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have great panelists, as always. We've got Felipe Mata, Matt Dion, and Dave Elton here. How are you, how are you doing, guys? Have a good one. Doing well. How are you? Bad, not bad. Surviving Korea, apparently. So good good conference for anyone who made it out there. I know uh, Sebastian did, but uh, not sure about anyone else. But uh, if you did, you know, make sure to, to give us a shout in the, the mailbag, right? And tell us what you thought of it. We have, we have a lot of great topics today, uh, a lot of juicy stuff, uh, especially our uh, kind of top topic around Unity, which we'll get to uh, in their monetization changes. We've also got some uh, stuff around uh, two large publishers potentially getting handed off, uh, Jagex and Gearbox. Uh, YouTube finally deploying some of their instant play games, uh, as people call it, Stadia 2.0, sort of. And uh, Story Protocol raising a good chunk of money in the current, uh, they, they actually spoke at uh, the KBW also, which was pretty cool. Uh, and then uh, a couple other topics we'll hopefully get to if we have time here. But uh, why don't we just jump right into it to get things going uh, with potential change in hands for two of the large publishers. Thanks, Devin. Yeah. Um, so really just very quickly, uh, two fairly large publishers potentially changing hands over the next uh, little while, um, potentially for different reasons. Not sure some of the reasoning for uh, one of them, but uh, Gearbox uh, looks like it's probably up for sale. Um, Embracer's been going through some uh, restructuring over the last little while, looking at reducing their costs. And rumor has it that Gearbox is now up for sale. Um, and this is even after there has been some uh, layoffs inside Gearbox, uh, which mirrors basically what's been happening across the Embracer group. Uh, so a little bit of history, you know, Embracer just bought Gearbox, really. Uh, back in 2021, uh, they bought the company for approximately $1.3 billion. Um, and now, interestingly, from a structure perspective inside Embracer, um, a lot of studios were put underneath Gearbox uh, when it came to, you know, who who was helping run and, and uh, uh, you know, 
with the with the especially with the console and PC side of things. So underneath Gearbox, for example, where Violation, which unfortunately was closed, uh, and Perfect World is uh, is a couple of examples. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, as they look at potentially, um, you know, selling Gearbox, what does that do to the overall infrastructure inside the the larger company? Um, I think one of their challenges is that you know they bought Gearbox. $1.3 billion at a time when valuations were really high. Uh, valuations are a lot lower these days and got to wonder what uh, what's going to be the end result there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it looks to be part of the overall Embracer group, um, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to right-size themselves. Uh, and then secondly, Jagex um, is potentially being put up or potentially even spun out by the Carlisle group. Um, now, Jagex, funny enough, was actually founded in 1999, the same year that um, Gearbox was founded. Uh, and for those that uh, remember, they're the, the maker of RuneScape, but uh, they've certainly changed hands a number of times over the years. Um, so there was a group of uh, U.S. investors that purchased them, um, or a majority share of them, um, around the 2012, um, with some initial investment prior to that. Uh, a group of Chinese investors between 2016 to 2020, uh, the MacArthur Fortune Holding Group for about a year, then that took place back in 2020, uh, and it's the Carlyle Group that owns them right now. Um, and, you know, the Jagex themselves have been going through a bit of an acquisition spree, uh, mini spree, I guess. Back in July last year, they acquired Pipework Studios, uh, and they also acquired uh, Game uh, GamePires. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where Jagex ends up, if they end up in the hands of another uh, investment group or if they do end up getting spun out publicly. Uh, again, you know, it's a challenging time for, for raising money. So we curious to see where things go. Um, you know, the, Kylo, uh, the Car Carlisle group bought the company for uh, an undisclosed amount, but it certainly was over half a billion dollars. So uh, where that ends up uh, remains to be seen. And, be interesting to watch as to what happens to those two groups. Definitely be interested. Uh, some good parallels there between those two companies, both being kind of legacy IP with the, uh, you've got RuneScape and I guess Borderlands. I mean, Gearbox has done some other stuff as well, but Borderlands, I'd say probably their standout IP. So the, the also having the companies underneath them, I guess will be really interesting. And maybe that's part of the reason why they're getting handed off is maybe they, they acquired too much, but I guess we'll, we'll see where that goes. But uh, hopefully both of those companies end up in good hands as uh, you know, like I said, some beloved IP and it would, would be a bummer to see that kind of end up in the wrong place. But Something to watch out for. Uh, there's always a possibility, of course, that it doesn't happen, right? If they're just, just yeah. shopping around. And I'm not sure we're in acquisition season anymore, so might be a tough one, but we'll see. YouTube uh, actually pulling off a slow rollout of their uh, instant play for YouTube. Should be interesting. Yeah, so on this one, like YouTube is now officially testing a feature that allows users to play games directly on the platform. And I say officially because it now appears at the experiments that are enabled on YouTube. So the feature is called Playables and it's currently in public testing in the United States and the United Kingdom. It's not clear how like you are eligible or not to, to, to test that uh, for the test. Uh, but the, it's on right now and it's also not very clear which are the games that they have. Basically, the, the, the article says that the playables are short free-to-play games that can be accessed from within YouTube videos or from YouTube gaming homepage. And for the ones that I've seen, it resembles 
a little bit to hyper casual or even like some some games that uh, are popular hyper casual mechanics are, are there uh, to play a playable like users simply click on play and the, the game will load in a in a new window and uh, yeah right now this is limited to a small selection of games but youtube plans to add more games in the future and often it to to developers to to allow them to to publish their uh, create uh, create their own playables uh, so it seems that Google is still trying to to get into gaming, right, and to get uh, a part of the pie. Uh, and like, uh, what do you think on this one? Like, do you think that this this is the final winning feature for for Google related to gaming? Can I ask a question real quick? Like, uh, is the is the intent here to keep users on the platform more and see more ads? Is that sort of the whole business plan here? And then I guess the follow-up question is, if I pull up a game, like a YouTube instant game, does my YouTube video stop playing or does it open in a new window? So I, I think on, on the first one, I would say so. So I would say like the main the main driver, I would say is like they, they understand that they have like content from, from games and that, so that means that they have that audience there and they want to keep them engaged for, for longer. And... Probably well. That's I, I would I would say like the most obvious way to really uh, monetize this. And the second one, I was assuming that well, you click play, it opens on a new window, but your previous uh, video stops at that moment, so you can play, and you don't have like the two sounds at the same time, and like you can uh, enjoy the game and close it. I don't know if they have like some kind of like uh, I would say. Uh, history of uh, information about like whether you have played it already and then you can continue your previous session or not or it's just all the time instant games and you start from scratch uh i don't have like information on that because it did the article was um was uh, quite quite uh, short i tried to research a little bit with bart the ai tool from from google and it was interesting that it was giving me information that wasn't public so how like I or at least I didn't found in other articles, and also find out his own um, uh, comment that he would like really to, to test himself. So really fun to, to try to get more information that way. So yeah, this is what I, I could find on on all these, but I haven't seen like any video of how it works. Uh, the the only one that I I saw as a type of game is Helix Jump or a mechanic like Helix Jump. That is like a very popular hyper casual game, but nothing else. Uh, no, no more stuff. Related yeah, for to me, yeah. For me, given the challenges around monetization for it, I wonder if the people that uh, would be would find it the most beneficial wouldn't necessarily be even traditional game developers, but actually potentially even the influencers that are running, or, you know, creating the videos on YouTube and are looking at ways of engaging their channel further. Um, so, you know, if you have influencers, you know, especially the ones that love to, um, you know, rage at games or, um, you know, using the games as content, additional content for their, for their channels, um, you know, and, and that way it really just becomes more of a ad revenue generator for them rather than necessarily a, a, a large scale gaming new gaming platform where you find you know the activisions eas or uh or even even potentially you know the voodoos uh or the say designs on there um so i it'll be interesting to see where it, where it ends up but 
Um, for me, that seems to be sort of the probably the likely driver. Yeah, probably it's useful for game developers that uh, like could find like whether their mechanic is engaging by maybe like having a shorter cycle to like create a, a full build, upload it to Apple or Google Play, go through the review, do UA campaign somewhere else that is not connected to the platform where you are really playing the game. So having everything like maybe in the same side, I don't know also how they are going to enable to browse for the, for games or it's like when you see a video, you have a game that is somehow suggested because it's related somehow with the video or is the the one that created the video that can enable to show games or not. I think it's still like many open questions and we'll see how this develops. And does that count as an install for Unity? I think it's a big Yeah, question. that's. I, I didn't want to, to <laughs> enter this now. Open Pandora's box too early. Well, yeah, I'd be, I'll be interested to see a bit more how this develops because uh, Google has a tendency to just kind of do stuff and try stuff out and see how it goes. Um, and they're never, I mean, this, maybe this is just my personal opinion, but I don't think they're good at UX and UI pretty much ever. So that'll be really interesting to see how that like plays into, uh, especially the questions around where does it show up? Like, when does it show up? Uh, how does it show up? Like it made sense with, uh, with, for those who don't remember, Stadia actually integrated some of that sort of feature towards the end of its life where uh, I think it was when, when it was like a related videos around that gaming category that you could start playing the game instantly uh, off of Stadia. And I believe it worked with like the games that were free because uh, you already logged into a Google account uh, for YouTube generally, uh, which then would also be your Stadia account, which then the, the games that were free to play, uh, it was fine, like Destiny too. And uh, I think there was at least one other one. So I don't know, that was something they tried before. So this is not necessarily new technology, but it does sound like they might be using something different. And I, I got to wonder like, is this uh, still using the same technologies in cloud hosted uh, or is it HTML five kind of games? Because we've seen a push for this kind of thing from Facebook, for example, before uh, with their sort of instant gaming uh, around HTML five games. And then Google had also pushed something similar for mobile around their sort of like uh, instant gaming sort of setup where uh, you had to, configure your game in a way that there was like a small enough download to start playing that was uh, able to be played initially. I don't know if that ever got a ton of traction though, because uh, I haven't seen it a ton of places. I think everyone kind of wants that time to start playing to be as low as possible. Um, so it's interesting that they're going with hyper casual on that. And I'd love to see, unfortunately I, I didn't get it uh, the way to know for those who are wondering if you have it uh, enabled. And I don't believe it's an experimental feature to turn on or off on the experimental page. I think it's just, if you have a playables category on the left that shows up, I believe that's how you find out if you have it, which unfortunately I don't, I would have loved to try it out uh, before this to get a, get a feel for, especially, you know, where's my reward for my stadia loyalty, right? Uh, chilling them so long, get nothing for it. But uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how this rolls out. Hopefully we'll have an update at some point uh, down the road when it's maybe a little more fleshed out if they don't just abandon it like most of their products at some point. Uh, so we'll see. Good good to see that there's still a push to uh, keep some of these sort of instant play features alive. Uh, but you never know. Who knows? Maybe it'll show up like attached to this video at some point, right? But YouTube, if you're watching it there, uh, you never know. But uh, speaking of uh, IP and, and monetization, uh, Story Protocol, Raise a good chunk of change. Yeah, so um, I thought this was an interesting story for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because I just sort of track the Web3 space closely and, and IP is a sort of a major challenge for 
uh, Web3 and, and sort of ownership and control of IP. But um, secondly, because this is a pretty big fundraise in an environment where there's not a lot of that happening, particularly in Web3 right now, but fundraising in entertainment and gaming generally. So um, uh, as Devin mentioned, th this company called Story Protocol raised $54 million. Uh, and this was from a, a range of interesting investors. So it was, it was led by A16Z. Um, but a couple of the highlights here, this, it's a, a long list of investors, but um, contributors here include uh, Endeavor, Samsung Next, um, a person named Si Hyuk Bang, who is the chairman of Hybe and BTS, the K-pop group. Um, also Paris Hilton's 1111 uh, Media, C.H. Kim, who is the chairman of Crafton. Um, uh, also, uh, uh, lost his, oh, here we go. Uh, Roham, who is the founder and CEO of Dapper Labs. Um, Balaji Srinivas, and a bunch of sort of um, well-known folks in the crypto space as well. Um, and what Story Protocol aims to do, uh, and this is a quote here, is they want to be Git for IPs with ownership and incentives. So they're looking to uh, allow for um, creators and owners of IP to bring it into sort of um, the digital age and overcome some of the very sort of uh, antiquated IP uh, legal infrastructure that exists in the analog world. And so they're doing this through um, the use of uh, uh, Web3 uh, uh, protocols that allow for tracking of provenance, proper attribution of um, you know, royalties and um, uh, ownership of these IPs. And also uh, they're aiming to enable composability so that others can sort of remix and remake these IPs as they see fit. And also uh, greater liquidity for IP on the blockchain. You know, everything is a little bit more, uh, or I should say a lot more financialized. And so that allows people to sort of buy and sell IP with relative ease, which is not something that's easy to do today. Um, but um, I guess liquidity is not really the main focus. They're looking for, to make IP accessible on the blockchain so that people can remix and compose uh, sort of in the like money Legos uh, idea that you hear often in DeFi. So, um, you know, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this. I did think it was really interesting. And Devin, I'm curious to hear if, if they spoke more about this at, at Korea Blockchain Week. It does seem like um, a strong Korean presence in both the investor group and the founder group. Um, so uh, one of the three founders, uh, S.Y. Lee, used to be at Radish Fiction, which was like an interactive uh, storytelling uh, platform, I believe. And they were bought by Kakao, which is a Korean company. Um, and then the other two founders, just really quick, um, uh, Jason Levy, who actually I used to work with at Episodes uh, on uh, Pocket Gems back in the day. And um, the final founder was Jason Jason Zhao, who is a product lead at Google's DeepMind. So there's an AI piece in there as well. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll kick it over to Devin real quick. Did you hear anything at, at Korea Blockchain Week on this? Yeah, paper? I caught some of the talk. Hopefully those uh, the talks get put online at some point. I'm not sure if they do that normally. This is, this is the first one I've attended. But uh, yeah, they had a pretty interesting talk uh, around the topic of IP in general, kind of talking about the idea that uh, a lot of the stuff around IP is a bit antiquated and thinking around it, which is definitely something Web3 has been pushing. And I actually really like the, the idea that uh, royalties can be automated, I think is a big sort of potential unlock for Web3 that it definitely seems like companies like this are looking to try and tap into. I got to imagine, though, this is 
probably going to go through some some rough stuff in terms of figuring out things when it's trying to pioneer. Like you got to imagine, for example, like, oh, you know, you've got royalty tracking for attribution and stuff like that. What happens if people just copy the content wholesale and then start it themselves and then market it better and then get the all the attribution to their site? Just just problems like that. IP itself is kind of fundamentally problematic, uh, especially when it's monetized automatically, uh, especially like let's say they don't have ways to reverse uh, things where they go to try and you know, moderate the platform, things like that. Opening it up seems great, but it also like opens up a lot of uh, issues. But the composability nature of Web3 definitely makes this, I think, idea at least a good fit. So uh, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to see, I didn't get to catch the whole talk, but I did like that they were trying to rethink IP in general. And I think this is like something we're going to see a lot from Web3 uh, in sort of the smaller scene, like maybe not so much from AAAs, right? They are going to continue some more antiquated thinking, I think around IP. Uh, But as we, I think as they pointed out as well, like AI is disrupting a lot of IP thinking already. So it definitely, uh, I don't think people are just going to like, you know, put text, you know, up there, text stories and try and monetize that. That's going to be pretty easy to just copy into another one, stuff like that. But this does bring up the, you know, the old right click save sort of uh, issue again. Right. So uh, really interested to see what they do with this money. Uh, as you said, it's not uh, common to see that big of a check uh, in the current sort of bear market around it. Uh, and obviously being, you know, with a lot of South Korean influence uh, on the company and, uh, you know, announcing the stuff around Korean blockchain week, I think they know their audience down there for that. And they tend to be pretty ahead of the curve on uh, like different th- different ways to think about monetization. Uh, you know, they've, they've pioneered a lot of that stuff in the game space. So it seems appropriate. It seems like a good fit. Uh, I imagine we, you know, those of you who won't, are paying tons of attention to Korea might not even see what they're doing for a while if you're not super into the space. So maybe kind of a quiet thing and either like, you know, they, it goes away silently or we hear about it later through some big uh, thing they get going on, hopefully. But uh, yeah, really, really interested to see what they do with that. Obviously, um, uh, they'll be ramping up, you know, with that money, hopefully soon. Uh, get some good stuff out there. Make sure to check out their website, though, to like see kind of what they're doing. Uh, as I imagine, they'll be trying to write off this press. But speaking of press, uh, the the big one for today uh, that I think a lot of people are talking about that we were actually looking forward to really digging into uh, is some changes around Unity's monetization model uh, for both the, the pro and the free. Uh, it's very interesting ways. Yeah, on a day that I think Unity was hoping that the developer community was going to be focused on Apple's new phones and watches and such, they released a small bit of news that effective January 1st, 2024, they will be introducing the Unity runtime fee that's based on game installs. Um, now, the, the basically what they're saying is, is that if you have, uh, or if you're using Unity Personal or Unity Plus, that if your game makes more than $200,000 US in the last 12 months, and at least 200,000 lifetime installs, or if you're in the Unity Pro or Enterprise uh, seats that you've made at least a million dollars in the last 12 months and have at least a million uh, lifetime game installs, they're going to start charging a fee, and that fee does ramp depending on how many new installs there are uh, past that uh, initial threshold. Um and they do have a scaling rate that depends, you know, if it's up to, so if you're a million uh, installs, for example, uh, over uh, the threshold, if you have a Unity Pro, it's uh, down to two cents per install. But, you know, in that first 100,000, it's 15 cents per install. Um, 
And, you know, they tried to soften the blow a little bit by saying, hey, by the way, if you're using some of our other services, such as uh, level play mediation for uh, for ads um, or other gaming services, that they'll you know potentially give you some credits towards some of those costs. But as you can imagine, uh, Unity is suddenly dumping a huge bunch of fees on the de developer community at large did not result in much in the way of good press yesterday. Um, and even today, they're still trying to work on clarifying some of their statements. Um, but there are some huge questions still around right now. So some of the questions were, uh, well, you know, is this based on every install that happens? And they tried to walk that back a little bit today and say, well, if it's on the same device, only the initial install will uh, charge a fee. However, if it's a multi-platform game and I install one version on my PC, one install on, uh, one install on my mobile, that counts as two installs. Um, demos, they're saying, will be largely exempt, but that will require the basically the company to say, hey, this is a demo, please don't charge us Unity. Um, and also to be able to say whether or not the game is for charity, Unity apparently will, will back off on that. Um, and supposedly they're saying that, you know, don't worry, developers, if you're working with something like Apple Arcade or Netflix or Game Pass, we'll be charging the publishers. We won't be charging you. So won't be a worry. Whoever said that, I think, really needs to understand how publishing deals work and those charges will be passed down. Unity may charge Microsoft first, but I can pretty much guarantee that somewhere the developer will still see that those fees. So, um, and, and, you know, right now as we start asking, well, how are you going to, um, you know, how are you going to calculate these installs? Uh, unfortunately, the answer right now, even though it's supposed to be rolled out in, you know, just over a quarter is, well, we're not really sure yet. We're, they're still working. They, they swear that they got, um, uh, they're working on figuring that out and that they'll have uh, a system in place uh, at that time. But, um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of questions. And right now, a lot of developers are really starting to wonder, is Unity going to be their engine of choice going forward? Um, you know, how that affects, you know, myself, my own personal opinion on it, uh, this really does change the success criteria for games that I'm looking at making in the future. You know, this really does affect my uh, effective cost per install. And, you know, what does that look like in terms of uh, CPI versus uh, LTV? Um, you know, and what you know, hyper casual? Oh my God, they've been hit already with Apple's privacy, and now with this, when you're looking at the razor thin margins that they're running on, um, it makes it really, really difficult to start thinking about. Well, how am I going to create a game that has millions and millions and millions of installs? But you know, as soon as that game just crosses that threshold that is really going to be costly for hyper casual games right now. And then on top of that, um, when you start looking at uh, the emerging markets and, and, and they did make a difference in pricing dependent on if it was a tier one market or an emerging market. Um, I'm really going to start looking at, does it make sense for me to release my game in countries that have really high installs, but a much lower um, revenue return. So, you know, the countries that are probably going to be affected are places like India, Brazil, Indonesia, Mexico, 
uh, countries where you do see high installs but lower revenue rates. So, um, I, yeah, yeah. There, and I mean, some of the developers come forward and said, "Look, as soon as this goes ahead, the game that I'm making right now, I'll actually lose money. I'll owe Unity more money than I receive from uh, from the stores themselves." So. You know, Unity is saying, look, this is really going to only affect about 10% of all Unity stores. But if you think of the number of Unity licenses that are out there for schools, for personal use, for people that are just fooling around, sure, it won't affect them. But the people that are trying to make their livelihood out of making games, the indie development community, the the companies that, uh, you know, their bread and butter is the hyper casuals, they're moving, you know, potentially moving from hyper casual into hybrid casual it's really going to be, uh, you know, really causing a lot of people to wonder, is Unity the engine for me? Am I going to switch over? You know, is it possible for me to go to Godot? Is it possible for me to go over to Cocos 2D? Um, do I look at, you know, uh, Unreal for those that, uh, you know, are still looking at um, or, you know, have the ability to go to a slightly more expensive engine? Um, a lot of questions and uh, a lot of frustrated developers right now. Love to open up the floor and hear what others have to say at this point. So I have a question, Dave, because I, I couldn't find out. But uh, this is for by developer, right? It's not by game. It's by developer. So if a developer it's, has like several games and they pass in total, no, my uh, understanding is per game. It's per game. Okay, but I could be wrong on that. Yeah, I don't know. That's the way I've read that so far. By developer, it feels like very restrictive, and like something that, as you said, like you could have like a lot of instances distributed about many games. Yeah, and, and that's you know another thing is that um, uh, you know they they do have different pricing dependent on which level you are. So if you, for example. Uh, are at Enterprise versus Unity Pro. Enterprise is, um, you know, once you cross that 1 million threshold, uh, their cost per install is half. So it's two cents per install for Pro, one cent per install for Unity or for Enterprise. But in order to get an Enterprise license, you have to have 150 plus seats. So most people are going to fall under Unity Pro because if you think of, you know, if it's 150 plus seats, then you probably have a company of, you know, at least 250 people because uh, you're probably doing the publishing side as well, right? Or, you know, all the people that don't really need seats, you're not going to be paying for those seats. So, I mean, those are some pretty large companies. And if you look at the size of the companies that do, um, uh, you know, the hyper-casual, the hybrid-casual, um, they're not that big, you know, like, uh, some of the games, some of the companies that, you know, do really well, like Say Designs, for example, does really well inside the hyper and hybrid casual space. I went and looked on LinkedIn to see how many people they had. And, you know, they had like 40 people inside the company as a whole. So, I mean, and as the publisher, uh, they're the ones that are going to be hit with the with the fees. So, you know, how are they going to justify, um, you know, games, the same, the same games. They're going to have a much harder time justifying from an economic perspective, just based on the increase in the in the CPI. Um, and I know one of the questions was, uh, this is one of the questions that they did receive from the development community. Um, 
whether or not you could, you know, take a look at a competitor and go, hmm, how can we bankrupt them? Well, let's take one of their games and and just install, uninstall, install, uninstall. Um, and Unity swears that they've got the technology to be able to figure out that sort of thing. But um, but there are other, you know, really good questions like Steam returns. What happens with Steam returns? Someone installs the game, they play it, they return it. As far as we can tell from Unity's side, they've installed the game, so therefore they've incurred the fee. But if it's a return to Steam, then they don't recur any of the revenue for it, and they could, you know, the developer then gets the the issue for it. So, a lot of questions. Um, and then for me, the other question is, how do they determine revenue for games that are ad generated where they don't use Unity ads? Are they just going to guesstimate? I mean, how how do they figure? How do they figure out revenues for, uh, yeah, for that? Yeah, I mean, these these were the main doubts, right? Like how how they like really can can be sure about the data they have, right? Like about the and what then is like uh, I don't know, like uh, exchange of excuses rather than like something that you can really. Uh, yeah, and I think another issue that's definitely been brought up is that so yes, this goes in effect. Uh, in 2024, but it affects games that have already been released. So, you know, if a game has already crushed across the thresholds, every new install at, you know, the, on the beginning of the uh, on January 1st, every new install for that game now incurs that fee. So you've published a game based on certain economic assumptions. And now those economic assumptions change come January 1st through, you know, you know, not something that you would expect. You know, there's certainly things that you can plan for, some things that you can, um, you know, potentially look at, okay, well, you know, the economy looks like it's in a bit of a downturn, so we need to make sure that we bring our estimates, our revenue estimates in in, in line with that. But it, this is not something you generally account for that retroactively affects, you know, games that, you've, that have been around for, you know, five, even 10 years. There is also this threshold for the for the revenue, right? Like, it's, I think it's 200k yeah. in the last 12 months, right? So like, there could be companies that want to earn a little bit less and be under the threshold and try to prevent the game to monetize yeah. better. <laughs> so is there, yeah, there are $5 underneath the threshold. It's like, everything's free now. Yeah. No ads, <laughs> IEPs are free. Have at it. Yeah, I was wondering about the, the, the like, because we are discussing about the short-term implications, right? About this is like, uh, okay, hyper-casual will be really hit by that. And there will be many probably developers that switch, switch to a different engine. Uh, at the end of the day, for hyper-casuals, we are saying like the, the cost of install is like 20 to 50 cents. So this is like doubling the... The, the, the cost so it really hits them hard um, but the, I feel like the other effect would be that we will have less games running like there will be even people that maybe withdraw the game because they don't want to maybe owe money to, to Unity or like the implications that this may have or just at that moment like maintaining the game doesn't compensate because there are no new extra costs uh, and especially the ones that are generating inventory for for ads, for acquiring users, right? So the, the secondary effect, the, the second wave of this would be like the increased CPIs as a, as a consequence of this, right? Like for mm -hmm. any developer, any developer, even if you're not using Unity, 
you will be hit secondary because like you will have less place to to buy uh, for this inventory and like CPS will will rise uh, eventually. Yeah, yeah. Even um, uh, saw on Twitter the uh, the makers of Cult of the Lamb have said buy your game now because it comes off the store on January 1st. So don't know if they're hundred percent serious on that, but I mean, there certainly are people that are that level of frustrated that they're willing to take, you know, their games off of the store just to make sure that they're not having to deal with these fees, especially when they're, you know, something that they really don't have much control in. You know, your only control over installs in reality is, are you on the store? You're not in the store. I mean, advertising obviously will have an effect, but. That's I guess with the theory. existing developers like Cult of Lamb, right? They already know what they've hit threshold on revenue wise yeah. and end users. So they know if they're going to be hit and they know how much it's going to cost them and stuff like that. So I imagine they could do the math right now if they're already over the threshold and be like, mm, yeah, let's just pull it, stuff like that. Yeah. So you got to imagine those cost decisions are going to be calculable, especially when you're trying to like get long tail installs. Uh, versus like a launch game like you know for the more retail model it's it's like it seems to hit both the upfront payment models and the free-to-play like imagine running a steam sale now uh to try and get people to buy your game cheaper well now you're taking uh, more of a hit in theory like percentage wise off of that sale and even uh, you even gotta wonder like are the free keys that you give out the steam keys to try and get like some some press and reviews are those now going to count towards being charged and stuff there's so many questions around that but i wanted yeah. to ask like if you had some thoughts or any of you guys have some thoughts on why they went this route what was the reasoning for this like uh did they say anything about the the approach why they did it this way and whether or not like they they care that this is going to piss a lot of people off uh it's really uh, it's revenue needing to generate more revenue as a public company like really what they're looking at doing is pushing people up inside their subscription uh, packages, um, you know, they want to move people from, you know, the Unity Personal up to Unity Pro. If they qualify for Unity Enterprise, they want to move people up to the Enterprise. Um, it is, yeah, it's they're a public company and they need to get more more revenue. And um, I just think there are better ways they could have done that. Yeah, downside is uh, going public, right? You start to have a lot of pressure on that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think they also mentioned that it's not just pushing people uh, into the revenue, but also pushing people into the other services they offer because there was some exceptions yeah. uh, around the monetization that has to do with uh, the services. If you want to clarify that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they did state that um, the quality, you know, and this is directly from uh, unity qualifying customers may be eligible for credits towards the runtime fee based on the adoption of Unity services beyond the editor, such as Unity gaming services or Unity level play mediation for mobile ad-supported games. So they really are, yeah, they're really trying to get people to adopt more and more services. Um, now, the, the best part for them is, you know, if everyone signs up for their uh, level play ad mediation, then, well, they've got a better understanding of what revenue the game's generating. Um you know, makes that side of it easier for them. Um, but yeah, it, it, it really is. This is all about generating more revenue from the company. So not just from the, the fees, but from what seats people are, are purchasing, what subscriptions they're purchasing, uh, and trying to get them further into the Unity ecosystem overall. 
Yeah, because this is what, what I was thinking. Like, if they can measure everything that they say they can measure, they could have really estimate what is going to be what they earn with this, but also the impact and how many developers they are going to probably lose because of that. So, yeah. I think in, in general they were thinking that maybe this just is not taking us so such a scary thing. It's like, oh, I need to move to use their services, and then that everything will be fine. But yeah. like the reaction has been like like much more dramatic mm-hmm. than they expected. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I do think that it's more dramatic than they hoped probably. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm sure some people there expected there, there would be a very large uh, blowback, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point, Dave, like there've been a couple of um, sort of anonymous like employee posts on, on Twitter and like developer forums and stuff like that. It seems like, it wasn't necessarily a unanimous decision to roll out with um, with these updates. Um, I think like like clearly the marketing and PR was botched, and it's there's a lot of um, confusion over how this is going to affect people. Uh, but you know, I think it, it's safe to assume that like there are many smart, capable people that are working there uh, who thought that this was a good idea for some reason. And so like, if we were to just sort of take the other side of the argument, like why, why would they be doing this? Like, you know, Dave, you mentioned money, like that's probably the number one reason they need to bring in more revenue to support their business. Um, We, we touched on, um, you know, potentially moving people towards some of the added services. One question I had, and I don't know if this was covered anywhere in the coverage of the story was like, you know, Unity is pushing really heavily into AI services. And I wonder if they're expecting like a, a, a large like usage bill from all the like AI calls they're going to have to be doing to where they need to pass that on to some of their customers. I don't know. And the the third like uh, thought that I had was maybe they just sort of overestimated their strength in the market um, in, in terms of like, they're like, well, where are other people going to go? Um, uh, that, that use unity. It's such a, a widely used engine. Um, you know, probably we'll see a lot of people go to Godot, I think, uh, to sort of tee up the next topic here. I think we'll see a lot of people go to Roblox actually. Um, you know, it's, I don't know that that's necessarily going to fully replace everything, but like, uh, uh platforms like Roblox and, and UEFN, I think are, are going to really benefit from some of these, these changes on the, the sort of low, like hobbyist or prosumer end where people want to just like get an easy tool to use to spin up some games really quickly. There are other alternatives out there and, and maybe Unity just overplayed their hand. Yeah, uh, you are right. They are including uh, some of their new AI systems um, available at runtime uh, and that they're being integrated, I think, in November uh, for all the subscription plans. So uh, they certainly are adding more components uh to the overall, you know, what those subscriptions pay for. So what they are going to do next, like you, you have ads integrated in the editor, so you need to watch an ad to to code one line or? Yeah, it didn't seem like this is about uh, monetizing the editor so much as it was like they were trying to emphasize that this was around monetizing the runtimes. Because one thing that, for those of you who don't like understand how Unity works, uh, because it's, it's different than um, uh, Unreal, I believe, and, and a lot of these other ones, is rather than coding their editor like build output necessarily for every platform they each platform has its own runtime that's basically the engine to run unity on that individual platform and it your game like sort of content is portable across those and so the idea is that they can optimize 
the performance. And that's part of the reason why I do think it, it performs uh, optimization wise a bit better than like Unreal. Uh, besides, you know, obviously the, the huge graphic differences and GPU uses and such, but they, they optimize for each platform to make it so that like, okay, this is, we can keep tweaking this, we can keep improving it. And they were trying to justify this basically saying, we got a lot of feedback from people saying they wanted us to spend some money improving these runtimes. So this is how we're doing that by saying, you know, we're monetizing the runtime. The only, the only problem with that is clearly they're going to prioritize the runtimes that get you, that, that get them the most revenue, right? So let's say uh, Android, for example, is just not pulling in a ton of revenue because it tends to lean towards maybe a less paying players than iOS. Then suddenly they're just less interested in spending time on the Android one, you know, the, you know, depending on how the metrics go, right? And so this user. could they backfire on that. On Android, you have yeah, more use. It's easier for hit the, the install start, yeah. right? <laughs> Right, exactly. And so like they're I think they're kind of looking at those trade-offs. And one thing I don't think was mentioned so far is uh supposedly this is like kind of a replacement for their previous revenue sharing model, um, which I think Unreal still does. Uh feel free to correct me on that. But uh it, it's it's funny because they both kind of went to that model and then it seems like they were like, Well, people don't like that, and they were kind of mad about that. So let's see if we could make them more mad with a worse model and see what happens, I guess. It's it's very interesting that they went from kind of like a taxing the revenue to taxing the installs uh, based off platform. So really they're like almost like attacking the platforms by targeting specific runtimes uh, and the monetization model, especially, especially free to play. Right. I think we all realize free to play is going to be hit pretty hard by this because we're already in a market where cost per installs is already too high. And this just exacerbates like the biggest issue right now in free to play and just in kind of gaming in general and makes it worse. Uh, yeah. So that doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, and it, and I think it's um, and some genres are certainly going to be hit more than others. So I, I did some digging yesterday just to take a look at, you know, um, I was looking at one of the um, highest downloaded casual games right now. I'm I'm not going to get into the names for the games that, but um, the game had done you know north of 19 million installs, so 18 million over the threshold and they certainly did uh, meet the revenue threshold um, at a company that was small enough that didn't fit uh, enterprise. So they were dealing with unity pro uh, pricing. Now their revenue per download, and this is IEP, this is not ads, but their revenue per download was six cents. So at two cents per install, that then removed one third of their IEP revenue. Now it's a casual game. They get a lot of their revenue from, from ad monetization, but um, you know, that's, that's the level of impact that it can, it can be for some games. Uh, and something I also don't think was, uh, was addressed yet was the difference in the fees per uh, country. In, in the sense that the quote unquote developing countries, which of course the one that I think that comes to everyone's mind is India here uh, being a huge one of installs, but very yeah. low revenue per install. Uh, they have lowered the the fee for those countries. But at the same time, like I think if you look at the, the revenue per user in those countries, it's still probably sometimes below the amount they would even be asking for to where some of these companies trying to consider deploying in India may actually lose money. Deploying out there, yeah, yeah, and and that's what I was saying before is that I, 
you know, there will be discussions about whether or not they geolock games out of some of the countries that have really high installs. So not just India, but Brazil would be another one, potentially Indonesia, potentially Mexico, not quite to the same degree, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it from a holistic perspective, you know, you've got the United States, the UK, wherever, they're the countries that are going to push you above your revenue target. But then you've got, uh, you know, India, Brazil pushing you way above your downloads. And so you've met those thresholds. But if you look at how can I better my average revenue per, per download, it would be, okay, well, I'm just going to take out India because it's going to cost me, you know, that much in order to, because of all those installs. Uh, but I'm not going to see the return in terms of the revenue side of things. So, um, yeah, I expect it will, it will greatly affect some countries and will greatly affect some genres. Other genres, I think they'll be okay just based on, you know, they've got better margins, a little bit easier for them to absorb a per install cost, but, yeah, I think it's it's it certainly is going to be a challenge for uh, for some games and some and what that means the ripple effect for some countries. Uh, to your point, uh, uh, Dave, around uh, certain genres and certain games being heavily impacted, um, this is just a quick anecdote. But I was uh, I'm writing a piece on mobile shooters for Novic Digest right now, and I had a quick look after I saw this news. Uh, Free Fire is made in Unity, I believe, and Free Fire dominates that genre in terms of downloads by a wide margin. And where do most of those downloads come from? It's India, it's Latin America, um, it's Southeast Asia. And this is a, a game, uh, or let's say a parent company that's already struggling. Um, you know, we've covered that previously on Novic Digest with C Limited having a lot of problems. Uh, so this is really only going to compound things for them. Um, but one, one last bit I wanted to end on here before we move on is, you know, obviously the, the, the backlash has been near universal. Um, do you all think that they're, they're going to change course or are they just going to plow ahead? Do you think they're going to pull this back? Honestly, I think at best they're going to do, they're going to clarify some of their rules. Um, I don't see them pulling it back. I mean, the thing is, I think they probably did a calculation of how do we get close to what it costs uh, for someone to develop on Unreal, but be a little bit below that and know that it's much easier to do your full integration of all of your SDKs, of all of the other elements that are required inside, you know, making, especially when it comes to a mobile game, it's that much easier still to do all of that inside Unity than it is to do inside some of the, the other platforms, be it Godot, Cocos 2D, or, or what have you. So I think it was a calculation of we'll push as far as we think we can, but then we'll hold because they, they need, as a public company, they need more revenue coming in to be able to reach that profitability, uh, you know, consistently. Um, so I think they'll do some clarification, but I don't think they're going to pull it away. Yeah, I imagine those clarifications will probably involve like some adjustments to exceptions or tweaking some of the rules or thresholds, right? Where it's like, or maybe they'll even just clarify by showing some of the math, right? Like here's here's the math we did. Like they already quoted that 10% number, right? So they're already trying to like add a little bit of transparency, but I think they need to obviously add a lot more if they want to like, here's why we were thinking this and here's the math behind it. So like at least those of you that are math minded can get it. But I do wonder like, could this uh, force, so let's say you're a game company and you are dependent on Unity for your 
particular games you already have live. Could this be an opportunity then to go, you know what? Uh, I'm over the threshold already, but before this comes out, I can't obviously can't limit quantity of installs, which would be a funny thing in and of itself if you actually could limit how many times that game could be downloaded. But I imagine then they go, you know what? Let's switch to a 99 cent model because uh, I believe that's still, I think, the lowest you can go and uh, add a bonus, uh, like, a, you know, those, those 99 cent sort of starter packs that you get in games like maybe just you start with that like a uh, sort of founders editions for free-to-play games right that sort of concept you get some bonuses but you got to pay and maybe they just switch to that model and be like well the 99 cents will cover any installs i get going forward for sure and then now i'm also going to qualify towards customers who are more willing to pay and kind of regress a little bit towards that model because cost like the cost per installs are too high anyways but if you then spend for cost per install you know you're at least going to get 99 cents well minus 30 percent plus minus unity's cut now but you know you i'm sure you could do the math and decide if it it makes sense but i just thought that was kind of maybe another thing we might see some some developers try but speaking of publicly traded companies that are going to have to start thinking harder about how they monetize although they're doing it well already roblox uh, and some interesting announcements around for their their developer conference as you mentioned earlier matt yeah, thanks, Devin. Um, I before the Unity news, I felt like this was kind of the biggest um, news item worth discussing um, that happened over the past week or weekend here. So the, the Roblox developer conference kicked off, and there was a bunch of news that came out of that. Um, so I, I thought we could hit on a couple of discussion topics that that were announced there, and um, you know, really just for funsies, um, uh, the CEO Dave Bazuki released um, his 10 five-year predictions for Roblox, and we can get into some of those and uh, and and compare them to his previous predictions and how, how well he did on those. So um, sort of the headline news here first is that Roblox is continuing its trend of trying to age up, and they're going to be releasing on the PlayStation, PlayStation 4 and 5, in October, and they're also coming to VR on the Meta Quest in September. Um, and if you were uh, lucky enough to attend this conference, uh, apparently the attendees all received a free Meta Quest Pro um, at the, the physical uh, Roblox developer conference uh, in San Francisco. Um, so that was one bit of news. Um, also, another bit of news, Roblox Connect. This is a video chat feature that they're adding into Roblox where you can like video call your friends, but it's not you know, video call like we're doing right now, it's with um, it's with avatars, like your digital avatars. And these are maybe slightly different from um, the Roblox avatars you see in the games. They're not super blocky. Um, they're, they're an attempt at like a slightly more lifelike, if you will, avatar. If you, if you look up the article, you'll see that there are some examples there. Um, so in short, a video chat feature with avatars and also like gyro controls somehow. This is going to be open sourced, interestingly enough. So they're hoping developers built on top of this. Um, And uh, speaking of developers, there was a bunch of news relating to Roblox developers. Um, The biggest one that caught my eye was that developers can now be paid in US dollars and not in Robux, um, which is like, I don't know, it's just kind of like a silly hurdle to have to, to get over, but that's big for people who develop on Roblox, and then also um, they're going to be releasing a an AI chatbot that's meant to aid with development and answer developers' questions about you know working with the platform and help with code completion. Uh, this is like on top of some of the existing AI tools that they've uh, announced as well. Um, so those were the big 
um, discussion topics, I guess, that coming out of uh, Roblox Developer Conference. There was also separately like a developer was arrested at the conference or like nearby the conference for threats of violence. I didn't like read into the story too much, but that's also something worth monitoring in the sense that, in my opinion, in the sense that like Roblox is like, it's a thing, you know, it's like we talk about it sometimes in gaming and some people take it more seriously than others. But like, if you look at the, the hold that Roblox has on the generations that are growing up right now, like it's a, it's a major like cultural phenomenon and like we all should be paying more attention. I think um, is my takeaway from that little sort of um, bit of bad news, but um, let me open it up before we get into uh, Dave Bazzucchi's predictions. Any thoughts on some of these announcements um, around Roblox aging up, around their AI tools, uh, VR? Like it, it, it already had um, a huge number of downloads on uh, MetaQuest. It's like easily the biggest IP and platform to come to the Quest Store by far. So uh, just just I'll open up to the panel here. Any thoughts on some of these announcements from Roblox? Um, I mean, my son loves playing Roblox and. You know, that's probably it's probably where he spends the majority of his time is actually inside Roblox. And he plays Fortnite, he plays Minecraft, he plays a wide range of games, but uh, Roblox is certainly where he spends a lot of time. Um, the, I mean, I, I think there still are some challenges uh, for um, developers inside the Roblox infrastructure. Um, you know, their payout system, um, you know, I'm not sure if it's still still at the same caps or, the, you know, the same levels that they had previously, uh, which can be challenging, you know, if you're, if you're bringing in, um, you know, a professional team to try and build out like a full, full game, um, game experience inside Roblox. I think that um, still may have a bit of a challenge trying to be able to uh, justify the, the economics of that. Um, now there, are, I know that there are companies that do really well. GameFam has done a fantastic job inside the, the Roblox infrastructure, um, and certainly looking forward to seeing more that they do inside there and, and more developers going into Roblox. Um, you know, the the move into VR, you know, it's not. I don't think that's huge news. Just unfortunately, just because of the size of the the VR community. Um, you know, I've got a, a Quest 2 at home. Certainly we'll be trying out Roblox and VR, but um, I'm not sure if that's really going to be the mover. PlayStation is an interesting one, uh, twofold, because it does finally get them onto a, another platform. Uh, but two, I think it does work towards their, their aging up of, uh, of, of, of the players. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, aging up is something they've been trying for a while. And uh, I think they've seen some limited success, but I don't know if they've seen the success that they quite need to yet. I think like uh, every time that we have news about Roblox, uh, I found it quite interesting. I think they, they have well, good thoughts about how to, to keep developing and evolving. Um, for instance, like uh, you were mentioning, Matt, that Roblox for, for Jogger uh, generations is, is a real thing. It's a... It's a very important thing, like, and then like, uh, Roblox Connect could be complementing that, right, and giving them more options to connect, like, even like, avoiding other platforms, like, and uh, keeping them inside, like, 
just like uh, they do now because it's uh, I could see like people they play in Roblox but then using other means of communicating with their clicks and now having everything inside is like okay like like absorbing all all that very smart move that's an interesting point um, you know maybe it's pulling people away from discord and keeping them on the platform um, but um, also like if you if we sort of skip ahead to some of the the prediction stuff. Um, there was one that Dave Bazuki had, there's a couple that are kind of related to this like video chat um, function that they've added. Um, one, uh, one of his predictions was that Roblox will be a frequent communication channel for my family. Um, another one sort of related to that Roblox employees will spend more time using Roblox for remote meetings than with video. Um, here's a perhaps even uh, more outlandish one. Uh, a school will integrate a full K-12 curriculum with Roblox, including language classes with schools in other countries and virtual field trips. So they're, they're really kind of like leaning into some of the, um, dare I say, metaverse um, capabilities with Roblox. Now, keep in mind, these are five-year uh, predictions and... Um, you know, they might not all come true. He was um, 58% on his last five-year predictions from 2018, uh, which is not bad. And we can go over those in a little bit. But um, before we sort of jump away from this previous topic, I just wanted to add that bit about like, they, they are taking the video chat bit very seriously. The timing of it's funny too, because uh, it, Meta is just starting to try and take Horizon Worlds and integrate it more as sort of like a social platform built in to like the home, as opposed to being like its own standalone app, partially because it's basically failed as a standalone app. Let's be honest. It's been a total disaster with the amount of money they've spent on it. And so it's kind of funny that now they're going to be competing with Roblox on that, or at least according to these predictions, right? They'll be competing with that. Uh, and that'll be kind of funny to see. Cause then it'll, you'll be like, Hey, do I use the thing integrated into the home? Or do I launch Roblox? And I think, obviously, Meta, in theory, has an advantage there. But I think people generally lean more favorably to, toward Roblox. But I do, I do wonder, um, with the with the VR rollout, is it possible to develop VR more like VR native experiences where it's actually using the VR aspect, or is it just you know the same client and everything exactly the same except for there's a screen on your face instead of like five feet away from your face like that if that's all it is then that's a bummer but if it's more where you could develop like more vr native style experiences that could become a dominant platform for vr development because right now vr development's not easy it probably won't be for quite a long time especially if unity's charging you know per install for that that's uh that's even even less easy right and we've we've already seen like rec room try and do something similar on vr and and they're also cross-platform by the way i think most of rec room's users are on like xbox uh, for example, but they are, you know, a big player on VR. So um, clearly there's a track record there of success and, and developing in VR. But to, I don't know the answer to your question, Devin, of whether it's like a different um, development experience. Maybe they'll get there eventually. Do you have some more thoughts, Felipe? I just hope that, uh, sorry, I just hope that they fix frame rate challenges if they're doing VR because yeah. Roblox is not known for a silky smooth 90 frames per second. But the visual fidelity is so high of those Lego people. Yeah, I was just going to comment on the AI chatbot that, that I think that's something that Unity is trying to push and like it's part of what they are offering with the, uh, as a, like uh, some service that they are giving and that's why they are 
aiming to increase the 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 runtime fees. So it's fun that they they give it for free. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly they're they're um, investing into AI in their own way. Um, there was a, a bunch of news, you know, previously before the Roblox developer conference around some of the the fun stuff that they're trying to implement into the, the Roblox uh, editing tool um, that uses like a an AI sort of natural language input. Um, I, I did want to um, just have a little fun here before we move on um, and and look at some of the predictions that um, Dave Bazuki made. So um, as I said, he did pretty well on his 2018 predictions. He was uh, 58%. I don't know how they calculated this exactly. Um, maybe they give him like partial credit on some of them, but um, here is here are some examples of things that he got right uh, uh, in 2018. So he predicted uh, 1 million concurrency in a Roblox game. He predicted that more than 50 million people would learn to code on Roblox. Uh, that 100,000 people would watch a Roblox game stream in 3D, uh, that a Roblox developer would earn $50 million in one year, and that a 100-person company uh, would be developing on Roblox. So um, maybe those aren't like the most outlandish predictions, but he did get those right. So let's take a look, just a quick look for fun, um, at some of the predictions that he made uh, at the Roblox developer conference the other day. Um, So I, I mentioned a couple earlier. Here are some others that caught my eye. Uh, one, a Roblox developer will be valued at $1 billion. Uh, a musician will perform live to over 1 million people on Roblox using a phone for motion capture. Okay, interesting. Um, a top fashion designer will be discovered on Roblox without having any experience in physical fashion. Um, and similarly on the fashion point, some Roblox creators will make more money from selling physical merchandise on Roblox than virtual merchandise. Um, I mean, this stuff is pretty interesting. They're super ambitious. Um, so we talked about like the virtual presence stuff, obviously they're leaning into, uh, developer support and getting, you know, more developers at larger scale and then music and fashion as well, like really leaning into that heavily trying to get massive um, <laughs> concurrency on a, a musical performance in Roblox and, you know, encouraging like fashion and brand building through Roblox. Um, I don't know. I find this stuff fascinating and it's like way beyond the realm of quote unquote traditional gaming, but um, really makes you think about what's possible with these platforms. What, what do you think? Is he like crazy? Are these um, realistic predictions? These are five-year predictions. Keep in mind. Uh, I certainly do think some of them are. Um, like they've already done musical performances inside Roblox, and and actually did see some great success there. Um, you know, the valuation of a billion dollars. I think the biggest challenge for that one is the revenue caps. So unless developers are able to see more revenue from the games that they develop, it's, it'll be hard for them to get that super high. Uh, valuation based on their per year revenue multiples. Um, but yeah, I think some of them will be, will certainly be interesting. Um, I, I was certainly thought it'd be funny that uh, people would be uh, meeting inside the Roblox dating experiences. Um, Cause I, I really want to see what that actually looks like. You look nothing like your Roblox character. What, <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like some of them for me look look plausible. Like the the ones related to to fashion, I feel like uh, it's not just Roblox that like 
is thinking that that's a good uh, opportunity is like really uh, fashion brands are really using Roblox already. And that's like, I think it's not a, a wild shot from, from, from him to say that. It's like he's seeing like how things are performing, how like uh, the, the, the industry is, is paying more attention to it as a, as a channel and eventually this could lead to it, right? Because they have the user base. This reminds me of Second Life when that was like a big deal, right? And people were making money off of, you know, making fashion and, and wearables and things in there. And obviously like other games have tried to recreate that sort of thing. But it seems like Roblox coming at it from like the make games and make money off your games angle seems to have like carried this, I think, quite a bit longer than Second Life really lasted. I mean, technically Second Life's still around, but not highly culturally relevant anymore, uh, except as a sort of, you know, predecessor to a lot of these things but it is kind of funny that they, they managed to get traction with like a much younger audience i would say than second life did and if they could just age up with them then like that's you know that was their big challenge but also if they could pull it off like a big success right where they you know kids started on this and they just never really age out of it that could be huge to where then it does make sense for people to be dating in it if they grew up with it they never leave it yeah i mean why not like uh, we've seen people like date, get married, and what whatever else in in MMOs, and it is it is a little weird given the the um, the style of of Roblox, right? Where it's like very kind of little kid, uh, you know, Lego looking kind of low poly stuff. Uh, so that that does make it kind of funnier. But given like that, obviously kids don't care about that, right? Like at the end of the day, people still make retro games. People still play retro games. Like I don't think that's the real barrier to going up. And people trying to like make stuff that looks nicer. Uh, doesn't necessarily bring people over, but I do think that, that these predictions now have to contest with the the Unreal Editor, uh, the, the the UEFN as like a big competitor. Now that we, I don't think we really mentioned in regards to this yet that that now there is something trying to edge into that space. Um, yeah, and like following up on the fashion bit, I mean there are luxury brands that are inside Roblox right now. Brands where you'd think uh, my seven year old daughter's never going to go out and buy a Gucci handbag by herself. Um, but the what I've heard from the luxury brands is, is just trying to get them into the mind space of the, of the kids growing up so that, you know, Gucci is something that you wanted to have inside Roblox when you're a seven-year-old kid. It's something that you want to have when you're 27 years old and can afford, uh, you know, an actual Gucci handbag. Yeah, this makes me think of... Um... If you ever watched any of the um, like the the toys that made us kind of things on Netflix, uh, you see a lot of the stories of the toys where like selling the toys was about like creating a comic or a TV show. I wonder if now we've moved past that sort of phase where when you're trying to sell products, you make like a, a cartoon for kids, and instead we start to see products and IP built primarily for something like Roblox, where let's say there's a new toy they're trying to sell to kids, and instead of being like, "Hey, let's make a cartoon about it," because that whole phase is past. They're like, oh, we'll make a, a, a Roblox experience for it. And obviously, you know, if it's something like Pepsi or Cheetos, that looks a little cheesier, uh, pun intended. But if it's, uh, you know, something that's just like a toy or whatever, trying to come into an interactive space and being able to play with that toy virtually or, you know, like a giant version of it, whatever, like it, it seems like there's some some interesting potential for cultural shifts here if they can survive. But I mean, I guess, I guess we'll see, right? Like Roblox has definitely, I think, They've got a lot of struggles, but they've outperformed, I think, where we expected, at least at least where I expected them to end up at this point. And surprisingly, obviously, most of those predictions you mentioned, Matt, that he got right were all about growth and he hit most of those. And so like that's 
I guess, pretty bullish for them to make those big kind of like, this is what's going to happen because we're going to grow and succeed and get a bunch of those right, as opposed to like stuff that's tangential to Roblox. So obviously you can't grow indefinitely, but, uh, you know, stocks like Apple try and try and keep doing that if they can. Um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll hit a cap at some point, but, but we'll see where that is and, and whether or not uh, we all end up doing this podcast in the future in Roblox, right? Through their new things or who knows. But uh, anyways, I want to thank you guys for joining. A lot of great topics today. Uh, I imagine as usual with these, many of these we will end up revisiting as they develop because a lot of these are kind of just at the beginning of their hopefully interesting phase. And so we'll see where that goes. But of course, I also wanted to thank you, listener, and, and hope if you have some feedback, questions, other stuff around this, uh, or even clarifications on some of, the, some of the stuff we missed because there's a lot of questions around these topics, definitely let us know. Make sure to hit up the mailbag at novic at podcast, uh, sorry, podcast at novic.co. Sorry, mixing up there. Uh, and, and let us know what you think. And obviously, we'll, we'll try and address it. But uh, again, thanks, everyone. Thanks, of course, to the panelists. And I uh, hope you all have a great weekend and see you next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.